guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. This week, Come Follow Me covers four books. We had lots to cover, so we put them together into two shorter podcasts. Be sure to check them both out. One of the podcasts covers Timothy, Timothy, and Titus together in one episode, and then the other one is a separate episode for Philemon. Like I said, they're both short, so please check them both out, and thanks for joining us. Welcome, everyone, to another issue of Talking Scripture. I'm Bryce. I'm Mike. And today we're going to tackle 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, which are affectionately referred to as the pastorals. Now, Mike, why are they called pastorals? That's a good question, Bryce. These epistles are called the pastoral epistles uh, because they deal with ecclesiology, the, the idea of how, how are we going to run the church. The ecclesiology looks at government, it looks at how the church is run, bishops, and a lot of these issues uh, regarding how to run the church are really issues that really kind of creep around around 100 AD. And so I'm not going to do a ton here on authorship today. We're going to do a supplementary podcast where I spend 20 or 30 minutes talking about this. But in scholarship, there's the, the notion that the bishops and ecclesiology and how the church is run really gets cooking about 100 AD. And so is this Paul? I don't really care. We're going to read it as Paul giving advice on how to run the church. So if you want to geek out on some of the historical stuff, that's going to be a supplementary podcast, which we'll attach in the show notes and you can listen to. So that's why they're called the pastorals, short one-minute answer. So these are kind of like the handbook of instructions in the early day church. Yeah. We kind of used to, you know, we have general authorities who give instructions, like Paul, our general authorities give instructions to ward leaders and stake leaders in the hand of a, in the form of a handbook. And so I'd like to begin, I'd like to jump in by asking, okay, why does the church exist? I don't know if you've ever pondered that or asked that question. Why do we need an earthly organization? Why does the church exist? Well, if you turn to our own handbook. Now, I think most of us are familiar with the fact that the church has two handbooks. Handbook one is for uh, bishops and stake presidents. Anyone who can excommunicate you needs special instructions on church standards and those types of things. Um, The rest of the church is led by book number two, which is all of the different organizations. So I'd invite you to go to the very first, the very beginning, the first chapter of the first handbook and ask, what is the role of the church? And I'll let you do that on your own, but let me just point out what it says. The church exists for two reasons. Number one, to provide the ordinances necessary for salvation. So it's to the church we turn when we need to be baptized or to partake of the sacrament or to go to the temple and perform any type of ordinance. The church is the one that offers the ordinances. But the other role the church performs is to maintain the purity of the doctrine. Can you imagine if we were all, if we all had to come by, by revelation to understand the plan of salvation individually? What a mess that would be. We would interpret the plan of salvation so much differently. And by the way, that's what happened. Yeah, it is. Historically. Yeah. But luckily, we have a church organization whose job is to keep the doctrine pure, which is why we have general conference, and which is why the churches canonize certain things, is to say, here is the pure doctrine that you need to know. And that's one of the major reasons for church leaders. So it shouldn't surprise us if we find Paul speaking to Timothy, who's a young church leader, and Titus, who's a, young church, who's a church leader. I guess we don't know Titus's age. 
But Paul is speaking to church leaders if he's talking about keeping the doctrine pure and some of the doctrinal issues. So, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I love the contrast. In verse three, 4, he talks about godly edifying. Focus on doctrines that godly edify. As contrasted by verse 6, where he talks about vain janglings. So one of the major challenges we all have to face is to make sure we believe truth. If you believe God's truth, you can have God's reward. If you want to believe someone else's truth, then you can have whatever reward they want, they can give you. But if you want God's reward, you have to believe God's truth. And so luckily we have church leaders whose job it is to keep that truth pure, that doctrine pure. That's going to be called a deposit. Several times in First and Second Timothy, uh, the author, we're going to call him Paul, is going to say, we need to guard the deposit. So I'm going to read a couple verses that talk about this. But as I talk about deposit, think about a treasure in a bank or a vault. Think about the Holy of Holies. The treasure is God, knowing, coming into his presence. So go to 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. And this is what it says in the King James. It says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings, or there's the vain janglings again, and oppositions of gnosis, science is the word that's used, falsely so called. Now, is he once again combating the Gnostics? Some people think maybe, but at least we know that he's talking about guarding the deposit. And he uses that again uh, later in 2 Timothy, where he says, we need to guard the deposit. Um, it's in 2 Timothy 1, verse 14. Well, even before you leave chapter 6, he talks about charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded and trust not uncertain riches, but trust the living God. So he's talking about those deposits that we trust come from God. So yes. he's kind of setting that stage that these are deposits and some deposits come from God and some deposits do not. Yes, yes. But uh, then in 2 tell us where you were at, Second Timothy 1, 14. He says, well, you, we got to do 13. Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 14 of chapter uh, 1 of 2 Timothy, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. And the words are literally guard the deposit. Para katathekain. Fulaxon. Fulaxon. Fulax. It's guard. Guard the deposit. The apostles, and, and this is, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of Mike Midrash here, but the apostles, their job is to guard the deposit. They're witnesses of Christ. And so this deposit must be guarded. And all throughout First and Second Timothy, as Bryce has mentioned, uh, there's all these struggles regarding what does it mean to be a Christian. He talks about vain jangling and false gnosis and all this stuff happening about, you know, different ways to see Jesus. We call this fractionalization. There's multiple Christianities popping around, and Paul is running around trying to straighten things out. Which is so interesting, Mike, because in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says the following, Your minds in times past have been darkened because of unbelief, and because you have treated lightly the things that you have received. So what have we treated lightly? 
The Lord is saying there's something that you've treated lightly that has brought darkness and unbelief. So listen to what he says, which vanity and unbelief have brought the whole church under condemnation. And this condemnation resteth upon the children of Zion, even all, and they shall remain under this condemnation until they repent and remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon and the former commandments, which I assume he's referring to the Bible there, not just to say, but to do. In other words, what, how we treat the scriptures that God has given us, what we do with the sacred deposit of truth that has come to us through church prophets and leaders, really does determine so much in our own salvation. You have been, your minds have been darkened because you treated lightly the Book of Mormon. And then I love in the later or later in the Doctrine and Covenants where he says, "Let every man be careful how they respond to the oracles of God, how you treat the oracles of God." So a lot in these these chapters about make sure you are true to the scriptures you've received true to the doctrine, true to the truths. And as a church leader, your job is to make sure that that truth is guarded and kept and protected. That's good. You know, Bryce, I've, as we've been preparing for this, I've been thinking, do we want to get into the weeds of some of the specifics? I think it's good to, on a macro level, look at the big picture. But I'm just going to go through some of these. And Bryce, if you feel like you want to talk about some of these, I'm just going to throw these out there. Right. As long so, as you talk about women and their hair. Yeah, we got to do the hair, right? So 1 Timothy uh, chapter, chapter 1, 3 through 7 is, he's dealing with, you know, false doctrine swimming around. I don't know how much we want to get into this, but the fourth chapter of 1 Timothy, in the first five verses, he's dealing with these Christians that think, I'm a better Christian than you because I have ascetic practices. And what, that's just a fancy way of saying, I'm doing stuff that's harder, like I'm not eating meat or whatever. And if you want to have a fun time, just go to social media and watch vegetarians and carnivores just blast each other back and forth. I, I do it for fun. It's, it's great sport. But I think Paul's saying, you know, give it up. We, we, we don't need to be doing this stuff. Which is interesting. Let me step in for a second. At the very end of verse 1, he talks about doctrines of devils. And then he mentions two specific doctrines of the devils. Verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. I've pondered a lot about why are those two specifically called doctrines of devils. And if you think about it, both of those practices divine, de, or defy our divine nature and the potential we have to become like God. Marriage is how we practice and prepare for godhood. So by forbidding to marry, you're forbidding me to practice my godhood. And, you know, animals don't eat animals. So to abstain from eating meat would suggest, well, I'm an animal. That's all I am is I'm no more than an animal. Therefore, I can't eat other animals. I'm no better than the animals. Again, a direct defilement of our divine nature, that we are simply animals. So it's interesting how both of those, and you find them in the Doctrine and Covenants as well, the Lord rebukes the forbidding of marriage and the abstaining from meats. Now, I'm not saying that those who choose not to eat meat, I'm not saying that at all, but the doctrine of you're no better than the animal, you are an animal, flies in the face of our divine potential. And that's why it says, it calls them doctrines of devils. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I will say First Timothy chapter two verse eleven. 
I, when you teach really young people, you know, say the 14 or 15 year old age bracket, the young men love to read verse 11. And what do we do with this? I'm not, I have no idea what to do with, with that verse. But in First Timothy 2, he does kind of put, you know, we, we're putting these household codes out there in the text. This idea of there's a hierarchy in, in the world, right? You have the the master of the house is greater than the wife, and the wife is greater than the children. And I just want to reiterate, if those of you that have heard President Nelson speak recently, especially at the women's conference, in the home, uh, we're equal partners, husbands and wives. And so I just want to testify of that. But I also want to make mention of First Timothy chapter 2. That was the world that Paul lived in. And so he was a man in culture that had views of his own day. We see, and I've talked about slavery before, so I'm not going to do a ton on here. But in 1 Timothy 6, he gives counsel to slaves that today we wouldn't espouse, but that was Paul's day. He was a guy that was inspired, and he spoke words that were God-breathed, but every word wasn't as if God was saying it. Which is why we need modern prophets and apostles to give us directions for the times in which we live. But can I mention something about the women's hair? Paul talks about women's hair. And back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says that every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, that men should not cover their heads, but women should cover their heads. And if a woman's not going to cover her head, she might as well chop her head off. And a lot of people are troubled. Now, I know Paul's probably talking about some cultural issues that I don't fully understand, and that's why I love Mike help, helping me understand some of those cultural issues. But there's some symbolism here. And I want to talk about that symbolism, because up and beyond this being a male-female issue, going back to the symbolism of the bridegroom, that we are the bride. We collectively are the woman. And Jesus is the groom. I love the image of a veiled woman. I just want everyone who's been to holy places to think about the image of a veiled woman. Women typically in our society wear veils when they marry. And the symbolism here is that that veil represents the protective covering that he now becomes and offers her as she gives himself to him. And if you picture a veiled woman, you can picture a submissive woman. Head bowed, eyes typically closed, arms folded. And the symbolism here is if we the woman, we the church are the bride, if we the woman will yield to Christ our husband, he will cover us and protect us. The root word of the word atonement literally means a covering. And so that's beautiful symbolism, that we are a veiled woman. And so literally, the hair of a woman becomes a symbolism of the covering that is over the church if we yield to our husband who is Christ. So a woman who is uncovered, symbolically, is one that is ripping off that protective covering of Christ. She's ripping the atonement off. Well, she might as well be bald. If in our society, as Paul says, I'm just quoting Paul, if in our society it is a shame for a woman to be bald, it ought to be more of a shame for her to be uncovered by the atonement and to lose the protective power of the atonement. So there's more to this than just casual grooming standards. There's something symbolic here that all of us are the woman and Jesus is the, 
the husband. And that by braiding our hair or playing with our hair or trying to replace our hair or adorn our hair with something other than what's really there, we're trying to replace the atonement, which is our covering. And we ought not to do that. We ought to yield ourselves to Christ and be covered and protected by him. That's why I love that symbolism, Mike. I like that. The male-female symbolism is everywhere in the Old Testament. It's everywhere in the New. And so looking at the Savior as the bridegroom, as the groom, is really good reading, in my opinion. Maybe sometime, and, and what, I'm not going to do too much of it here, but maybe sometime I'll do a really short podcast on Second Temple literature, the Book of Enoch, and how this relates to Genesis 6 with, with the fallen angels, because there's a lot of literature that Paul's aware of with this that, like Bryce said, is cultural, and he's just assuming we know this, and modern readers don't know this. And so for maybe 1% of our listeners, they may be interested in that. I, I don't know. We'll see. We'll put something out there. Uh, Paul says a little wine is going to be good for your belly. He seems to be giving some medical advice here. I love where he says the love of money is the root of all evil. I think if you're teaching little kids, this is really fun and you can do this. You can do object lessons and you can talk about tithing. And I can't even tell you how many times I've worked with teenagers and they've always, and they have this little joke, this math equation they draw on the board and, and they always do it wrong because they say that money is the root of all evil and money is not the root of all evil. But Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil. I'm just going to read it just for fun. So he says this, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So, you know, do with that what you will. There's, there's a really good book out there by um, S. Michael Wilcox, and it's called What the Scriptures Teach Us About Prosperity. And there's so many good lessons in there about money and the widow's might and when is it appropriate to spend? And he has a whole chapter on there about Mary anointing Jesus with that sacred oil, uh, that anointing oil. And he talks about how sometimes in life we spend things that are maybe a little bit more extravagant and we do it because it's not about the spending, but it's about the relationship. And so the, just some really, that whole book is really good. But if you're sitting here wondering, well, okay, when should I spend money? When should I not? And and what are some good lessons about money? I would suggest reading that book and picking that up. And like I said, Mike Wilcox has some really good advice there that, that you could take out of that. Great. Hey, before we go, Mike, let me, I just, I got to, we got to turn to chapter three of second Timothy about the last days, perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own self, covetous, boasters, proud. He just describes our day to a T. You know, that just so many destructions. But then he gives the solution. Um, verse 14, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are, ab which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. The, the solution to every challenge that ails us in our day is to turn to the scriptures. So in these pastorals where we're talking about keeping the doctrine pure, it's appropriate that Paul turns his attention to why take care of the scriptures? And Alma does the same thing to his son Helaman. He says, let me tell you why I've been so careful to take care of these scriptures because you don't understand the power that these scriptures have to change lives. 
in Alma 37 where he says, you might think this is a small thing by small and simple things. What he's really talking about is the effort to preserve the scriptures. You might think that's an insignificant thing, but you have no idea the power of the scriptures to change lives. And in our day, the scriptures are the antidote to what ails us. Turning to the scriptures almost always brings the blessings that we need. I love in Lehi's dream where he has the, it describes the rod. The rod will do three things. If you go back and read 1 Nephi chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, the word of God will do three things. Number one, it will keep you out of the river. It will protect you. There is a protective power that comes the moment we begin to study the scriptures. Number two, it will lead you to the tree. Now, the tree is the love of God. The greatest source of feeling the love of God is when we hold tightly to the word of God. And then number three, it will keep you on the path. There are, in Lehi's dream, three roads that lead off. Now, next year when we do Book of Mormon, we'll spend a lot of time on this. That'll be good. But there are three roads that lead off the straight and narrow path. The strange road, the broad road, and the forbidden road. What will keep you off of forbidden roads? What will keep you out of the strange and the broad roads? It's holding on to the scriptures. And so Nephi simply says, now notice the wording here. This is powerful language. After the dreams are over, he and his father have had these dreams. And Laman and Lemuel come and say, what meaneth the rod of iron? And Nephi says in 1 Nephi 15, 24, I said unto them that it was the word of God. And whoso would hearken unto the word of God and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish. Neither could. Now that's a fascinating word right there. Neither could the temptations and the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness. It's not that they wouldn't. It's not that it's not likely. It's not possible. You cannot. Let go. Uh, you, you cannot fall into the river in Lehi's dream if you're holding on to the rod. You cannot perish. Neither could the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them. So I love that in giving advice to Paul, to Timothy, he says, hold to the scriptures. Hold to the scriptures and you can live in a society where these things are present. You can live in perilous times and you'll be just fine. Hold to the scriptures. And at the same time, in that verse, he says the scriptures lead you to Christ. It's, yeah. it's faith in Christ who saves us. And I love the next verse. And I got to tell you, I think it's misinterpreted. So I'm going to read it. We're in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, and to all good works. I'm going to talk a little bit about building, but before I do, just look in verse 16. Nowhere in that verse does Paul say that his words or my words or anyone's words are infallible. I love what Joseph said about the Book of Mormon where he said, it is the most correct book. Bryce, what does that imply? It doesn't necessarily mean it's perfect. Right, right. It's, it's not, nothing's perfect. Nothing in light, in this world that we live in, we are approaching truth. We approach it a lot of times obliquely. We don't really grasp it directly. And even in Lehi's dream, the rod led to the tree. It's the love of God. It's God that saves us. And so the scriptures are wonderful. But if we ever approach them as if they're, it's some kind of infallible thing, 
I think we get uh, caught up into some problems. Which in the very title page of the Book of Mormon, Moroni is so concerned. Don't let the imperfections of man right. lead you away from the truth of God. Which kind of leads to a couple things I want to talk about with application, the imperfections of men. I love, I got to say this, I love that the scriptures are imperfect. I love that our leaders are imperfect. Uh, when Joseph Smith was on the trail to uh, Zion's camp, some of the brethren that were seeing Joseph be human were really frustrated. And one guy said, I'm glad that I see the humanity in Joseph because if God can take Joseph and make him into a prophet, then what can he do for me? I think that was Lorenzo Snow. I think so too. I think that's who that was. So I want to talk a little bit about building. So notice what he says in 2 Timothy 3. He says, we're going to thoroughly furnish this building into all good works. And in the same book, 2 Timothy, but in the second chapter, he says this. Now, I'm going to read it a couple of different ways, but it's verse 20. Well, we got to do 19. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. The Lord knows us. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of also of wood and earth and some to honor, and some to dishonor. Now, there's a lot of different ways to read that verse. One way to read verse 20 is, you know, the church is made up of lots of different types of metal, types of people with different gifts. But one way to read it is that we are invited to be gold and silver. So look in verse 21. Therefore, if a man purgeth himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. And then it gives advice that I think you and I all can heed in verse 22. In other words, what are we building our life with? Wood and clay or gold and silver? And this brings to memory Second, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're back to this metaphor that Paul uses about building a building. And the metaphor of building a building is a temple metaphor. If you read section 124 of the Doctrine and Covenants, I'm not going to go there, but if you read that, there's all this temple imagery and building imagery and this idea of an edifice. But here we Which are. It's down in verse 16 of chapter 3. Know ye not that you're the temple of God. That's what yeah. you're building here. We're building a temple. And that's symbolic and literal. Yes. I mean, this is, this is great metaphorical language. If you look in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. At the end, he says, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon this foundation, gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. And I, one way to read this is I think Paul is inviting us to bring our best to the table. Paul, I, the way I read him is he's just, he knows who saves him. He knows that Jesus is the Savior. But Paul's like, darn it, I'm just going to get to work. I'm going to do everything that I can to build you, to build the kingdom. But I think in nowhere does Paul glory in himself and say, hey, I'm the Savior. He gets it, but he invites us to him. Now that brings to pass this idea of receiving the apostles. So another theme in 2 Timothy is who are you receiving? And remember that th this text is written to a group of Christians that are being, they're swimming in false religion. There's all these different Christianities sw swirling around. So in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, we read this. The Lord gives mercy unto the house of Anisiphorus. Now I probably butchered the pronunciation, sorry. For he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. 
But when he was in Rome, he sought me out diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And what he's saying, what Paul's saying is this house, this church house received me. When we get to the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, there's going to be churches that don't receive John. And this is an invitation to us as Latter-day Saints, and I'm just going to call it like I see it. There are people out there right now saying, hey, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Book of Mormon, but I don't accept Elder Oaks. I don't like what he teaches about things. Or I like Elder Uchtdorf, but I don't appreciate President Nelson. And I, I look at this, and I'm just going to say it. The way I read it is there you can't get to Jesus by rejecting his apostles. You have to get to him through the apostles. And there's a lot in here, but I'm just going to summarize it. We'll do a lot. We'll probably do a whole podcast on 3rd Nephi 19. But in 3rd Nephi 19, Jesus calls his apostles. He baptizes them. And that's in verse, uh, it's in there. He, oh yeah, he baptizes them and they get the Holy Ghost in verse 13 of 3 Nephi 19. It came to pass when they were all baptized and had come up out of the water, the Holy Ghost did fall upon them, and them is the apostles. Now, I, let me interject a little bit. I would encourage everyone to go through uh, 3 Nephi 19 and circle every them, they, and their, yes. and identify, are they the 12 or are they the multitude? It's either the 12 or the multitude, and you will be very surprised what you find. Yes. Yes, my reading of this is we're talking Quorum of the Twelve. And this is a very direct object lesson, and I think we miss it if we don't read carefully. I think careful reading matters. And so in verse 14 of 3 Nephi 19, it says, Behold, they, and I wrote in my scriptures, the Quorum of the Twelve, were encircled about as if it were by fire. And it came down from heaven, and the multitude did witness it, and did bear record. And verse 15 says, It came to pass that while the angels were ministering unto the disciples, Jesus came and stood in the midst and ministered unto them. Not among the multitude. Jesus isn't among the multitude. He's among the twelve. Now, this isn't favoritism. He's trying to teach a very significant lesson here. And what, are the, what, are those les what do you think the lesson is that he's trying to teach? He tells them. He says, well, remember when the apostles are all pure, they, they turn white? Then he goes off and prays and he says, thank you for purifying my apostles. And then he says, please purify those who believe on their words. That's verse 21. That is so important. Why, Bryce? Because what he's saying is, look, the way it works in my kingdom is I will purify my apostles. I will purify my leaders. I will make sure that I am with them and I speak to them. And they will give it to you, nothing varying. I love verse 8. Nothing varying from the words which Jesus had spoken. If you want to be purified, you do so by hearing and heeding their words. I'm going I'm to say this. I think in today's church, that principle is teaching 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. It is. This, in, in our day, we have people that are literally falling away because they don't like what the prophet or what a member of the 12 is saying, and yet they read the scriptures. And so as valuable as the scriptures are, and they're valuable, I want to just testify of modern witnesses, of apostles. And I... I can't read 3 Nephi 19 and not see the pattern. And to me, the pattern is this. Jesus says to these Nephites, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving you my witnesses. If you give strict heed to their counsel and teaching, they're going to lead you where you need to go. They're going to lead you to me. And I just want to testify of that to me. If I had one thing to teach, if someone said to me, Mike, you've got five minutes, you've got to teach 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, 
I would probably give a 30 second spiel about the apostasy swirling around without any specifics, and I would go right to 3 Nephi 19. And Mike, to make one more plug towards the Book of Mormon, in the war chapters, Moroni has all these cities fortified there. This war should have lasted one day. When they finally, in chapter 49, when they attack, they get the Lamanites get slaughtered. So what happened? The Nephites did two very dumb things that opened the door to the Lamanites. And they lost their cities. And then they'll spend the whole rest of the war trying to recoup their own fortified cities. Well, guess what one of those two dumb things was? They started to take issue with their leaders, the kingmen. They had a dispute over certain doctrine and the way the church was being, the, the nation was being led. And that right there, one of the great lessons of the Book of Mormon is, we have all power over our enemies until we start taking issue with the Lord's anointed and his leaders. And then we open the door to the enemy. And then we will fight tooth and nail and recover those very cities that we lost. This is such a major theme of the Book of Mormon that the way the Lord operates is he will purify his leaders. If we want to be pure, we've got to listen and heed their warnings. So critical. All right, thanks, ladies and gentlemen. We're so grateful you're with us. We love you. We love these scriptures. We bear you our witnesses of their truthfulness. May you find the words. May you find godly edifying in these wonderful words of scripture.